The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. We are finishing the third talk of a series of talks called The Essentials, and so we, we talked about baptism and communion, and this morning uh, we're going to talk about the wood, uh, reference to the cross, and uh, so we have a guest speaker today. So this morning... Uh, many of you have had a chance to hear her speak before, and she's really been uh, dynamic. I recall when I first met them, and I had a lot of questions. And they mentioned they were from the South, and it answered all of them. So uh, it was good. So please welcome our friend and our sister, Krista McCurlin. Thank you. Well, speaking of the South, Matt and I got to go home last week, which is why we weren't here for a couple of weeks. And let me just say, I ate the best food. I mean, you've got all kinds of great food out here because of all the diversity, but you still don't know how to do fried. I hate to tell you. So we still have a corner market on fried chicken, fried green tomatoes, fried, I don't know, everything we do is fried. Uh, So anyways, uh, we had a blast going home. And the other thing about going back to the southeast is we can actually afford haircuts there. Because out here, they cost you an arm and a leg. You have to sell a kidney just so you can afford a haircut. And so since we only get to go home once a year, I was like, I got to get my money's worth. So, yep, I went short. It's not a ponytail. I really did go all the way. And um, it was funny because... um, you know, I basically, Matt had gone to his parents' house, and I was at my parents' house, and I was Googling short haircuts. And so I called him up, and I was like, okay, type this in, and then this image that comes up, what do you think about it? And he looked at it, he goes, I like it, go for it. I was like, okay. So I go to my friend, who's been doing my hair forever, and I show her the picture, and she's like, okay, here we go. And so she was cutting it off, and I was just more and more nervous. And when she was finally done, I was like, holy cow, I hope this is going to go over well when I get back to California. But the good thing is, it's California. Everything goes. So it was fine. <laughs> but it was interesting because the first time I actually got to see a group of people was at my office. And I'm in my cubicle because I got there before everybody else. And I really, literally, was sitting at my computer working on stuff, thinking, okay, when do I go out to get the coffee? so that people see my hair, and then what do I do if they don't like it? And it was so funny, and I don't know if any of you have had this similar kind of experience where you've gotten a really dramatic haircut, but I've had three primary responses, and the first one was, I love your hair. It looks great. And of course, I give that person a really big hug because they boosted my self-esteem. But the second response is, you got a haircut. (laughs) Okay. So you validated me, um, but you didn't compliment me. Thanks. And then the worst is, how are you doing? (laughs) Great. So clearly, you're not a big fan of the hair. But all that to say, it's really interesting. It's made me think a lot, especially in in light of this talk, um, of how often we put our identity and our confidence in externals. And maybe for you it's not your hair, uh, maybe it's your, your skin or your body type or outside of our bodies, maybe it's the car we drive or the house we live in or the zip code in which we live. It's in our significant other or lack thereof. 
It's in who we know and who knows us. Uh, It's based on our successes and our salaries. Uh, It can be based on a million different things. And I think it's interesting because so often our confidence is actually based on something external to us, something that is beyond our control or If we think it's within our control, we'll try to control it. So we'll get plastic surgeries, and we'll get nicer cars, and we'll try our best to to move into the the better neighborhoods, and we'll name drop, and we'll network. And sometimes, maybe when we're at a lower point where our confidence is and our self-esteem isn't quite as high as we would like it, sometimes we will use people... Uh, to get what we want. We will belittle others. We will put them down or we will uh, just in some way build ourselves up by putting other people down. And it was interesting. I don't know how many of you have read uh, Lord of the Flies, William Golding. Pretty good book. It's one of my favorites. Uh, and it, as I was working on this talk, that there was a scene that flashed into my mind. Uh, and if you don't know the premise of the book, it's a group of boys that are stranded on this island, and they have a power hierarchy based on who is the strongest and the oldest and all that. Might makes right, that kind of principle. But there's this one scene where one of the older boys is out on the beach, and he sees one of the younger boys uh, catching these sea urchins as they come in from the tide. And he digs a hole and he captures them uh, and then pokes at them and stuff. And basically what was happening is because the younger boy was at the lower part of the pecking order with the older boys, he had to control something. He had to find something that he could dominate or you know, have his way with or whatnot. And it's just interesting, this idea that we often put our confidence in what we can control. But the problem is, control is an illusion. Anything that's based on what we strive for, what we do, because I mean, even if you're beautiful, age is going to happen. You know, with this recession, maybe you've been really successful, but you can lose all of that even with finances. And kind of what I want to propose to you today is that when we put our confidence in things that are constructed, things that are unstable, things that are contingent and changeable, we, we're really setting ourselves up for failure because we're constantly grasping at what we can control and trying to control things that, frankly, I don't think we can, we can always control. We're, we are subject to our circumstances and the things that are going on in our lives. And it's kind of like, if I don't know if this will make sense, but as an illustration, kind of metaphorically, if you've ever gotten onto an elevator, maybe like the first floor, and not that any of us do this, or any of us have even done this this morning, but you walk into the elevator and you're assessing kind of where you fit related to the other people. Maybe you're better dressed or better looking or whatever. And on that first floor, your confidence is here because, you know, you're the top of the the elevator pecking order, I don't know. And then you go up a floor and a few more people get on that are better dressed, that are better looking. Uh, Maybe they're having a more intelligent conversation than you could have. And there goes your confidence. And so then you go up the next floor and those people get off. And then you're back up again. And kind of our confidence can go up and down just like that elevator. And we do this all the time. We step into a room and that's what we do is we are trying to figure out where our confidence well, it's, I don't think it's conscious, but we are figuring out how we fit in compared to everyone else. And so what I want to propose to you today is that we need to find our confidence in something that is stable, something that is outside of us, 
something that is not dictated by circumstance or surroundings, but that's really based on the work of Jesus Christ. And so the wood today, talking about the cross, uh, we're going to take a look at a passage in Hebrews, which is a very fun book, um, and kind of talk through the, the author of Hebrews' argument, essentially, for where we can put our confidence. And I was a philosophy undergrad student, so I love logic. Like, I'm one of those really nerdy people that logic makes my heart sing. And so, if you're like that, you can read the book of Hebrews, and it will make your heart sing. It is an argument, essentially, written by the author, and we don't know who the author is. I like to posit Priscilla, but don't have a lot of takers on that one. But anyways, uh, don't know who the author is with Hebrews, but they make an argument. It's a long argument explaining how Christ is superior to the old way of doing things. Christ has introduced a new way of doing things that is better than the old way of doing things. And so the author of Hebrews, Hebrews was the word for the Jewish people. You can read this back in the book of Exodus. Uh, the Hebrew people, when they were back in captivity uh, under Pharaoh in Egypt, were known as the Hebrew people. And so in the New Testament, we have this book, and it was a letter to the Hebrews. So it was actually people who had recently trusted in Christ, but had a very, very strong Jewish background. So if you read the book of Hebrews, it is full of Old Testament uh, allusions. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But basically what this author is saying is, the new way, the new way of trusting in Christ is so much better than the old way of following the code and the traditions, because he has introduced a new way to access God, and it's not based on the externals. It's not based on ceremonial cleansings. It's not based on the 633 laws that were given to you back in the desert, uh, which was when they were in their captivity time in Egypt. And so that's kind of what the whole book of Hebrews is about, as it's an argument for really making a case uh, for Christ in the non-modern sense of that book. Um, so anyways, we're going to take a look at that together. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10. And if you don't, it's going to be up on the screen, so don't worry about that. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at a section of four verses. And I'm only going to read the first three, and we're going to unpack that. And then we'll get to the fourth verse, which actually is the conclusion of how this should affect how we live. So the first three verses are a summary of the author of Hebrews' entire argument, because this is picking up in the 10th chapter. So for 10 chapters, he or she, has argued for who Christ is and what he has done. And so these three verses are really the shift in the whole book, which is why he starts with a therefore, but we'll get there in a second. And so there's a shift moving from summary of the argument, and then verse 22, which we'll get to in a second, is how that should affect our lives today. So to begin with, he says, chapter 10, starting in verse 19, and it's, we're going to stop mid-sentence, but bear with me. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, like I said, I'm stopping before we get to the premise, premise, conclusion. I'm stopping before we get to the conclusion, because we've got to unpack this a little bit to understand how strong this guy's argument is, because basically, and, and I'm standing up here telling you today, I'm basing my life 
on this argument. So I want to make sure that this thing is solid. So let's look at it together. So he starts off there with a therefore. Therefore, brothers and sisters. Uh, and the reason the therefore is there <laughs> is because this is that major shift in the entire book of Hebrews. It says, since we have confidence... So the confidence is assumed because of the previous 10 chapters of what he's argued. So that's his presupposition, is the confidence. But fortunately, he goes on to unpack that further. And he says, basically, why we have confidence. And it's to enter in the most holy place. Okay, so what on earth is the most holy place? Got to give slight background here. Um, So I mentioned the Hebrews, and that they were the Jewish people that had been in captivity in Egypt. And God basically took a step towards them because they were his people. And that had started many, many uh, generations before the people were in captivity in Egypt. He had set the, the Israelite nation, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, apart as his special people. And so they were in captivity in Egypt. And if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you're ahead of the game. So basically, they cry out to be rescued. And God takes a step toward them and raises up a guy named Moses. And Moses, through God, (laughs) leads the people out of Egypt through several miraculous events. It's a pretty rocking story if you want to read Exodus. But leads them out uh, and takes them into the wilderness. And this is prior to them entering into the land God had promised them. And while they were in the desert, the wilderness, God continued to take steps towards them. And he did that by giving them the law. Now, you may think, that's really weird. Like, who would really want a bunch of things to do and not do and think that that was a good thing? Well, you have to remember that the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, was passionately pursuing relationship with this people, with humanity. And that was so different from the surrounding nations. Because remember, the Hebrews had come out of Egypt, which was a polytheistic belief system. And you just hoped when you sacrificed your child to those gods or the gods of the surrounding nations, like the Canaanites worshipped a god named Melech, that when you sacrificed your child, that the god would be pleased by that and that they would bless your crops so they wouldn't kill you. But you would never know if you'd satisfied that god. And it had cost you everything to hopefully please this fickle uh, divine other. But then you contrast that to the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, who said, I want to be with you. I want to be with you so badly. I'm going to take you out of captivity, and I'm going to give you the way to be with me. That's why he gave them the law. The law wasn't just so they could be moral. It wasn't just so they could be good people. He gave that to them because a holy God wanted to be with a people that was holy. And so he gave them this set of precepts, these laws to follow in order to be with him. So the law, even the giving of it, was God's step towards humanity. But he didn't stop there. He also gave them prescriptions to build a tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was... Uh, what became later the permanent temple. But the tabernacle was a place where God's spirit would dwell among the people. Again, contrast that to the surrounding nations and their belief system. Their gods didn't want to be with them. Their gods wanted to use them and exploit them for their own selfish purposes. But then you have the God Yahweh, who's the God of Israel, who's, who wants to be with this people. And he wants it so badly, he tells them how to build a home for him to dwell among them. And so there was a tabernacle 
Well, within the tabernacle were several divisions, but the, the common people and the priests could go uh, in the outer courts of this tabernacle, but there was a special room within the tabernacle, the most holy place. And this is the place that the author of Hebrews was talking about. And in this place was the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, you got a visual with the Ark. That was in the most holy place. And the Spirit of God would actually rest on the Ark of the Covenant in that most holy place. Now, that most holy place was separated from the outer courts by a thick curtain. Some estimate it was up to six inches thick that separated the outer courts from the most holy place. Now, and we are getting somewhere, just so you know, but this is the beautiful argument. This is why I love this. So, so that this, this most holy place, there was one guy on one day a year that would be allowed to enter into the most holy place to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And that one guy had to be from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And not only that, he had to be from the line of Aaron, which was the priestly bloodline. And only that one guy on one day a year, the Day of Atonement, could go into the most holy place and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And that sacrifice would be a goat. And he would sprinkle the blood of the goat on the Ark of the Covenant, and he would come back out. And the whole assembly, the whole people of Israel would wait outside the tabernacle expectantly, hoping this guy was going to come back in one piece. Because remember... This guy was entering into the most holy presence of the most high God in the most holy place. Lots of holiness there. And so he literally would have bells tied into the hem of his garment. And he would have a rope tied around his ankle so that when he walked through that curtain and stepped into the most holy place, if those bells stopped jingling, the people would know he wasn't all right. He'd, not, he'd missed something, some external washing, some law, some code. He'd missed it, and God had struck him dead. And so if those bells stopped jingling, they would actually pull his body out with the rope because they couldn't go in to get it. So that's the weight of the most holy place. And now, what does the author of Hebrews say? Let's look at it again. Verse 19 in chapter 10. He says... Since we have confidence, why? Because we enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We now have that access that the high priest, that one guy on one day a year could go in and do, we now have access to because of the cross, because of Christ's sacrifice. And so he goes on to explain that, verse 20. And this is by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And so basically what the author is saying here is that curtain that was six inches thick that you literally uh, went in with fear and trepidation into that most holy place, that way is now through Christ. That way is now open to everyone. And you know what's so cool? Uh, In Matthew, and we're going to flash this up. You don't have to flip there. But this sheds light on what happened in Matthew 25, verses 50 and 51. And if you recall, when Christ was on Calvary, and he had basically been up there for about six hours, and he was finally to the point of death, he's on the cross, and it says uh, that, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. 
And then right as he dies, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the same curtain. And I remember, even what's so cool, it was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top. This was not a man-made tear in this curtain that was yay thick. This was a tear in the curtain from top to bottom, God saying, through Christ's death, you now get to enter into the most holy place. I mean, just how dense that is, how powerful that is of what the cross has done. Because we talk about the cross a lot. And we, we say great things about it and, and that it's forgiven us and all that stuff. And that is so true. But it has done so much more than that. And it is worth us putting our confidence in the work of someone else versus in our works or in our hair or in our bodies or whatever our successes are. It's putting that confidence in the accomplished work of Christ instead of the constant strivings of our own doing. Like, that's what the invitation is for. It is for us to step into that and, and basically walk into the holy place, that we get to do that. And so he continues on here in verse 21, uh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and this is what he's highlighting here, and earlier in chapter 4, I believe, he had said that the people of God are that house. So for those who have connected to Christ and received the blood of his sacrifice, which is basically what the author is saying here, you now have him as your high priest. You don't have to go through the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, and you actually can enter into the most holy place as you are. And I love that, that we have a high priest who is now all of our high priests and connecting us to the God of the universe. And so this is why... The author is saying we have confidence. Because honestly, what do you have to fear if that's the kind of access you have to God? And you know, well, we're going to get into the practical part here because I don't want to steal my own thunder. This would be kind of counterproductive. Um, So he continues on here. So we've got the argument, right? Basically, what Christ has done trumps the old covenant. It trumps the old way of doing things. Really, it brings to fulfillment that old way. God basically saying, I took a step towards you and bringing you out of Egypt. I took a step towards you and giving you the law so that you could be with me. I took a step towards you so that you could build this tabernacle so my spirit could dwell among you. But I want more. I don't just want to dwell among you. I want to dwell in you. I want to be with you. And so he took the biggest step of all, which was actually becoming human. I mean, how bizarre. How awesome that that's what God would want to do in pursuing us so radically and so passionately was to become completely other to who he is to make us one with him. It's just rich. Okay. So anyways, he goes on here. And so basically because of that argument, Now, what does that cause us to do? In verse 22, if you want to pick up with me there, he says, So because of all that, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. What's interesting about this statement is when it says let us, we might think of that as more of a suggestion. Like, let us go to Starbucks and have a dopio or whatever. Uh, Nobody gets dopios. Um, Anyways, so it sounds like a suggestion though, right? 
But really, this is a command. It is because of what Christ has done, you must draw near to him. And what I love is it doesn't say, unless your Bible's different from mine, which if it is, we need to talk. Um, it doesn't say if you feel worthy. It doesn't say if you've read your Bible. It doesn't say if you've been a good little boy or a good little girl. God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't operate by naughty or nice. He has given everything to step towards us so that we might then step towards him. And so we need to draw near to him. And I believe what that looks like is that we, one, we have to rest in his completed work. So this striving that we do, this comparison where we in our own minds come up with these constructs to belittle others, to elevate ourselves, that we... um, get so worked up about what we look like or what we're making or whatever compared to others, we've got to just leave it. It's not worth it. It doesn't work. It exhausts you. It doesn't get you anywhere. So we've got to, I think, and a lot of that comes down to understanding what the cross has done. Like what we're talking about this morning, like recognizing that that cross has given you confidence to come to God all the time. And that often looks like prayer conversing with him, talking with him, and listening to him, and just drawing near. I, 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 you could think of a million ways that that could look like, but I think that's what we have to start doing is recognizing that our confidence can't come from anything of this world, because everything of this world is subject to collapse, and we're just exhausted in the meantime. So resting in what he has done. So... He also talks here about having full assurance of faith and sincerity of heart. And I think that just highlights that we do. We come as we are uh, with nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of. We just come into his presence knowing that he has taken so many steps toward us. So today, I really don't know where you're at. Um, Maybe some of this or all of this has been very new to you. Um... One, maybe you never even thought you put your confidence in something that was unstable. Maybe that was news. Uh, Or maybe you've connected to Christ at some point in your spiritual journey, and you're not living like your confidence is there. And so the question for all of us is really the same. The question is, where do we put our confidence? And is it in something accomplished by someone else, which I posit would be the best place to put it, and that's in what Christ has done? Or it's based on on the externals. And so um, I want to close with a story about a friend. uh, And and I just, this story really resonated with me uh, when I was experiencing it. And I thought it might be a good way for us to just think through this area of confidence and where we we put our hope. But I had a friend in undergrad, and she's just one of the most amazing people I've ever met. Just served and loved and just... I just loved her to death. And just to illustrate that point, she, as soon as we graduated, uh, drained her bank account, uh, put everything she owned in a backpack, and she just trekked Mexico looking for grassroots political movements to volunteer for. (laughs) I mean, that kind of a person that just would give. And I remember one time when we were in school, she needed a parking pass, and I had driven to downtown uh, Athens in Georgia, not Greece, I wish. Uh, And... I had pulled up to the coffee shop, 
and rolled down my passenger side window, and she came up to the, the, the window and almost collapsed into my car. And I was like, what's the matter? Is everything all right? And she goes, Krista, it is exhausting being a revolutionary. <laughs> And I loved that she just had the guts to call it that because she is that revolutionary. But I say all that to tell you that one day we were walking from one class to another. And unlike our usual conversations that ranged all over the map that were typically kind of fun and joking, uh, she had more somber tones on this particular day. And as we were walking, she, she looked at me, and we were already running late to the class we were headed to, so it wasn't going to be a real long conversation, but she got her money's worth in that five-minute walk. And she said, Krista, you know what terrifies me? No, I didn't think anything terrified you. She said, I'm so afraid that I'm going to choose the wrong cause to live for, that I'm going to get to the end of my life and I will have chosen the wrong one. She goes, that terrifies me. And then she turned to me and she said, Krista, how do you do it? Of course, my only answer in that five seconds was transcendent hope. And oddly, those two words really do summarize everything that we've been talking about this morning. That because of what Christ has done, because of the way that he has opened to be into the presence of God himself, we have a hope that is external to this world, that is untouchable by this world, that is so worth us putting our confidence in. And what I believe will happen is we take that step towards God because of his step towards us, we will then begin to take steps toward others. Because imagine if you lived a life without fear, without a fear of rejection, without a fear of, well, is my love going to be reciprocated? I believe we could live lives with such recklessly abandoned love that people would want to take that step towards God because of us taking steps towards them. And so today, I just challenge you to think through, where is your confidence? If, if you've trusted in Christ's completed work, then that confidence should be driving us to love people like we have never loved before. Because it doesn't depend on how it's received. And if you're, you're in your spiritual journey and you're not sure about this whole God thing, totally cool. I just want you to think through where is your confidence and just know that Whenever or if ever you get to that point where you want to take that step towards him, just remember how many steps he has taken toward you. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much uh, for that piece of wood that you died on, God. Um, that that cross did so much more um, than, than even forgive us. As huge as that was, God, it actually opened up a way for us to be with you now. And God, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves and think through where we place our confidence. Is it stable or is it unstable? How are we loving others? Is it based on how they're going to love us or is it based on having first been loved by you? 
And God, for those who aren't sure about any of this stuff, and this was just bizarre to hear so much history in one morning, God, I just pray that you would continue to speak um, to each heart in this room and just show us how many steps you've taken toward us, God. I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your sacrifice. I thank you that I can even pray these prayers knowing that they are actually entering into your throne room. Thank you so much for what you've done for us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.